0: Why can't you see what you're doing to me when you don't believe a word I say? We can't go on together with suspicious lies.
1: All right, we are back. Let's talk about uh, bad behavior with international repercussions. Before we talk about the BP blowout, here's one little item I I have to slip in. Dateline, Nogales, Mexico. The latest figures show that Arizona, which is implementing the nation's toughest anti-immigration law, is also the only border state where illegal crossings are on the rise. The border patrols as arrests there have increased 6% over this fiscal year, while overall crossings to the U.S. are down 9%. Anyway, back to BP. Interesting guest editorial in the Sacramento Bee by Doug Elmets. Doug Elmets uh, is president of Elmets Communication, I guess, in Sacramento. But his his resume includes the fact that he used to uh, manage public affairs for ARCO, which was eventually bought by BP. He said, after the company's drilling rig explosion, many friends asked me how I would handle public relations if I were in charge. At first, I hesitated to embrace the role of Monday morning quarterback, but BP's repeated missteps have so astonished me that when the B asked for my thoughts, I couldn't hold back. So here goes. Referring to a foot-in-mouth disease, he said if there's anything that can turn a major PR problem into an utter disaster, it's an arrogant, tone-deaf company executive. Meet the 2010 poster child for this type, BP CEO Tony Hayward. Every time Hayward opens his mouth, bad things happen for BP. In a boneheaded move to minimize the worst spill in U.S. history, he called it, quote, relatively tiny, unquote. About a week after the spill, Hayward was quoted in the New York Times as asking his inner circle, what the hell did we do to deserve this? Oh, nothing like playing the we are not to blame card to rouse some public empathy. The real doozy, however, was Hayward's comment suggesting he's a bit weary after working such long hours since the spill. I'd like my life back, whined the pink-cheeked oil titan who reportedly makes up to $10,000 a day. Gee, Tony, I bet the 11 people killed when your oil rig exploded and sank would like their lives back. Second headline, a believable game plan is good. As BP lurches from option to option in attempting to stem the flow of crude, the American public grows ever more dubious the company has what it takes to resolve this catastrophe. Saturday Night Live had a field day spoofing the various potential solutions BP's trotted out with comedians suggesting satirical cleanup approaches like dolphins with mops scotch-taped to their fins. Citing a credibility gap, Mr. Elmits noted that uh, when a company official declares there are a thousand barrels of oil pouring into the ocean, it turns out to be more like 5,000. Public trust goes bye-bye. Well, yeah, except that his numbers are down by a factor of five. They were saying 5,000, then as we mentioned later claiming they were sucking 20,000 out. Some estimates say this is like almost 100,000 barrels a day because apparently an awful lot of it are in these, uh, these long plumes that have still not made their way up to the surface since they are starting a mile down. Anyway, Elmets concluded by noting that company officials might want to start rewriting their crisis management manual. And you know things are bad for a, a large company when even the Wall Street Journal is kicking them when they're down. To excerpt from the Wall Street Journal, they noted that one of the tasks uh, in in closing off this well was to cement in place the pipe that ran into the oil reservoir. Halliburton, the cementing contractor, advised BP to install numerous devices to make sure the pipe was centered in the well before pumping the cement in. in. An April 18th report to BP, Halliburton warned that if BP didn't use more centering devices, the well could likely have a severe gas flow problem. Still, BP decided to install fewer of the devices than Halliburton recommended. In fact, six instead of 21. BP said last week, it's still investigating how cementing was done. Halliburton said that it followed BP's instructions and that while some were not consistent with industry industry best practices, they were, quote, within acceptable industry standards, unquote. And apparently the industry standard they're talking about is to use two pipes, one inside the other when you go down that far, and BP decided to use one single long pipe. The article quoted David Purcell, petroleum engineer and managing director of Tudor Pickering Holt and Company, an energy-focused investment bank, saying, I couldn't understand why they would run a long string, meaning that single pipe. BP spokesman Andrew Gowers said the well design wasn't unusual. BP engineers evaluate various factors to determine what design to use for each well. I don't know. This gets rather technical, but uh, I still have to ask the question: How often have we been drilling a mile down on the seafloor? And of course, the corollary question: How many other wells like this do we have out there that are 5,000 feet down? That that is that is pretty deep water. I love the fact that the government's having to beg for more information from BP about, about what's going on. Article by Marissa Taylor and Renee Shoof from McClatchy.com notes, BP keeping data on oil spill, comma, safety out of public view. Noting in the article that BP's role as the primary source of information has raised questions about whether the government should intervene to gather such data and to publicize them and whether an adequate cleanup can be accomplished without the details of crude oil spreading across the Gulf. Well, sad to say, this story's not going to go away anytime soon, so we'll come back to it in future installments of the show and hopefully have some people that uh, have some direct contact with what's going on down there uh, chat with us about that. But this is one case where some activism probably could do some good. All right, and speaking of protests, we have one that apparently is brewing uh, here in Davis, and joining us now on the program to talk about that is a truth activist Mark Graham. Uh, w- welcome to Radio Parallax, Mark.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Now, I understand you guys are going to be out in force here on uh, Friday, June 11th?
0: That's right. We'll be doing what we call freeway blogging um, at a couple of the overpasses over Interstate 80 in Davis.
1: And you're just going to be putting a sign up to direct people, I presume, to the website?
0: Well, our sign is rather simple on one side. It just says, investigate 9-11. The other side of the sign is a little more elaborate. We'll probably switch it around at some point. And that side says, 9-11 was created by U.S. Gov to manipulate U.S. into war.
1: Well, Mark, it's interesting you say that. On next week's program, we expect to be talking to Evan Thomas of Newsweek magazine about his book, The War Lovers, uh, subtitled Roosevelt, Lodge, Hearst, and the Rush to Empire in 1898. A lot of folks certainly see parallels in uh, what uh, took place in the late 19th century as we ramped up to war, and what took place this decade before the Iraq War.
0: This is an old trick that's been used by many governments, not just the United States, but when the government wants to go to war, the, the basic problem they have is convincing the people and they can either try and reason with us and say well we really ought to or they can create what we call a false flag event or an event to be blamed on some other people who are then the bad guys and then the government says, well, we'll come to your rescue if uh, you will permit us and support us in launching a war against these bad guys.
1: Well, I must confess, Mark, I'm, I'm confused about some of the issues surrounding 9-11. The notion that uh, we haven't been told the full truth out of it, I think, is pretty much a slam dunk, uh, as you say. People are sometimes incredulous to realize that the government had plans like in the 1960s to blow up airliners so they could blame it on the Cubans, Operation Northwoods and things like that. I know that the... Uh, that uh, I saw a lecture where this was mentioned um, accurately by Professor Stephen Jones of the uh, of University of Utah, and that's, I think, where we, we, you and I met briefly at that event. We may have uh, Professor Jones on the, show, on the program in the future, and I'm not sure when that would be, but um, again, this is a very interesting topic.
0: Yes, Professor Jones taught actually at Brigham Young University for many years, and he's since published a number of papers on his research into the events of September 11. He will make a fascinating interview, I tell you that much.
1: Well, Mark, uh, we we think that uh, spirited uh, uh, public activism is a very good thing. I wish you well out there. And again, that website people may want to go to directly is?
0: It's www.freewayblogging.com.
1: Fair enough. Well, we'll be looking for you.
0: Thanks so much.
1: All right, minor item from our theme of uh, bad behavior with international repercussions. The slime ball, Joran Vandersloot. Prime suspect in the disappearance of American teenager Natalie Holloway apparently is confessed in Peru to murdering a woman in his hotel room. He was arrested apparently the same day that authorities in Alabama were going to indict him for uh, offering to sell information about what happened to Natalie Holloway. Well, since the lo- evidence looks pretty good, they have a, a budding serial killer on their hands down in Peru. Um, I, I hope they try him there where I think they still have the death penalty. And yeah, 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 I know killing people in general is a bad idea, but I'm willing to make an exception for some individuals. By the way, this is a good time to mention that the opinions you hear in this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVSR sponsors or the regions of the University of California. And a bad behavior of of more significance would be uh, the Israeli attack on the relief ships that were trying to bring supplies into Gaza Acts of international piracy in the ocean off the coast of Somalia has earned international uh, condemnation, but uh, when Israel pulls this sort of stunt, criticism seems to be somewhat muted here in the U.S. of A. Anyway, the Israelis have gone on a very aggressive PR campaign to uh, to portray their valiant commandos (laughs) armed and dropped from helicopters onto the ships as darn near being lynched by the people who tried to beat them up with clubs and sticks. Naturally, they weren't overreacting when they shot nine of them to death. Turkey, of course, was the first Muslim nation to recognize the new state of Israel and has had good relations with it ever since. Not so much now. I love this. Israel said the violence was instigated by pro-Palestinian activists who presented themselves as humanitarians but had come ready for a fight. Organizers of the flotilla accused the Israeli forces of opening fire as soon as they landed on the deck and released video to support their case. Sounding a voice of sanity in all this was Aluf Ben in Israel's Haaretz, who noted that there is one bold step Israel could take immediately to solve this crisis, end the Gaza blockade. Five years of enforcing Gaza's isolation has not weakened Hamas's control, Attempting to police what Gaza residents can and can't eat and buy casts a heavy moral strain on Israel and increases its international isolation. A week after this bloody incident, the Israeli commandos stopped another Gaza-bound aid vessel carrying an Irish Nobel laureate and other activists and forced it to head into an Israeli port. Israel said it would block any attempt to reach Gaza by sea in order to, pre- in order to prevent weapons from reaching Iranian-backed Islamic militant groups. Although my understanding is they were only able to find two weapons on all of the ships that were stopped. In an editorial, The Economist magazine said, The blockade of Gaza is cruel and has failed. The Gazans have suffered sorely but have not been starved into submission. Hamas has not been throttled and overthrown as Israeli governments and many others have wished. Just as bad from Israel's point of view, it helps feed antipathy toward Israel not just in the Arab and Muslim worlds, but in Europe too. Israel once had warm relations with a ring of non-Arab countries in the vicinity, including Iran and Turkey. In fact, the cover of last week's Economist commented upon Israel's siege mentality. Their editorial noted that Israel's caught in a vicious cycle. The more its hawks think the outside world will always hate it, the more it tends to shoot opponents first and ask questions later. And the more it finds the world is indeed full of enemies. On a happier note, the magazine noted the prospect of a deal between Palestinians and Israelis still beckons. The contours of a two-state solution remain crystal clear. An adjusted border with Israel keeping some of the biggest settlements while Palestine gets equal swaps of land. Jerusalem shared as a capital with special provisions for the holy places and an admission by Palestinians that they cannot return to their own homes in what became Israel in 1948 with some theoretical right to return acknowledged by Israel, and a small number of refugees let back in without threatening the demographic preponderance of Jewish Israelis. The Economist, we would remind you, is a British publication. Here in America, certain public relations voices tend to uh, drown out criticism. The Economist noted that the Israeli raid came soon after Mr. Obama had decided to rescue America's relations with Israel from the ditch into which they fell last March, when Israel announced plans for a Jewish suburb in occupied East Jerusalem, just as the Israeli-Palestinian proximity talks were about to begin. And if you don't think criticism of Israel will get you into hot water, just, just look into what happened to Helen Thomas. The dean of the White House press corps resigned as a syndicated columnist last Monday amid controversy over comments viewed by many as virulently anti-Israel that she made to a filmmaker last month. Helen Thomas, a Lebanese American who grew up in Detroit, was well known as a critic of Israel. As a Hearst News Service columnist, she had described Israeli settlements as illegal colonies. And in a column last year was was critical of U.S. support for a state- that oppresses a helpless people with its military power and daily humiliation. Unfortunately, in an emotional moment, uh, Thomas was asked if she had any comments on Israel in, in the wake of this attack. She said, tell them to get the hell out of Palestine, adding, remember, these people are occupied and it's their land. When she was asked where Jews should go, she commented, they could go home, suggesting they go to Germany, Poland, or the United States. I don't think Helen Thomas was suggesting the state of Israel should be abandoned and that people should return to the countries from which they came, but that's how people took it. On her website, Helen Thomas said, I deeply regret my comments made last week regarding the Israelis and Palestinians. They do not reflect my heartfelt belief that peace will come to the Middle East only when all parties recognize the need for mutual respect and tolerance. May that day come soon. Helen Thomas had covered 10 presidents in her career— most of which was spent with United Press International. She began covering the White House in 1960. The LA Times noted for years she was in the front rank of the White House press corps, posing blunt, often uncomfortable questions to the world's most powerful leaders. Ironically, it was her own blunt answer to a question that abruptly ended her long career. But anyway, speaking of intemperate remarks regarding the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, we have the following. I think we made passing mention of this a few weeks ago. Apparently, Rima Fakid was crowned Miss USA last month. quickly found herself the target of bloggers because of her Arab lineage. Fakid is a 24-year-old Arab-American whose family comes from Lebanon. She has uh, almost nothing in common with the religious zealots who inspire militant Islam. Yet, her tiara had scarcely come to rest on her cascading dark tresses, when the far reaches of the right-wing blogosphere went ballistic. I'm quoting from an article by Shashank Bengali from McClatchyDC.com. Deborah Shussel, a, co- a conservative blogger, charged that Faki was a radical Muslim because she shares her family name with some officials in Hezbollah. The Jewish Internet Defense Force, a pro-Israeli website, proclaimed it is a dark day for America. Daniel Pipes, an outspoken neoconservative author, and all-around jackass, wondered about this surprising frequency of Muslims winning beauty pageants. He listed five examples in three countries since 2005 and suggested that the Donald Trump-owned Miss USA pageant had bowed to affirmative action. In the wake of all this, apparently Rima Faki Hezbollah has become a suggested search term on Google. Never mind that Magnus Ransdorp, a Swedish political scientist and one of the world's leading experts on Hezbollah, said it was ludicrous to suggest that Faki, whose family includes Christians and Muslims, is a Hezbollah sympathizer. Said Ransdorp, with her low-cut gown and jewel-encrusted bracelet, not to mention tiny bikini, she'd be flogged if she showed up in any of Hezbollah's neighborhoods in Beirut. None of this deterred Debbie Schlosser, who last week wrote a post entitled, Reason 883,000 Not to Eat at a Muslim-Owned Falafel Shop. I don't know. For my money, I'm sticking to Muslim-Owned Falafel Shops. Those Baptist-Owned Falafel Shops just don't do it for me. Anyway, final item in this segment regarding uh, bad behavior with international repercussions. We have the teabagger movement here at home, apparently seeking to repeal the 17th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. You know, the one that allowed us to elect our senators directly instead of having them appointed by the legislatures of the various states. Anyway, Timothy Egan, writing in the New York Times, commented on this, noted that uh, somehow taking away the citizens' right to elect their own senators is supposed to diminish the influence of big money and bring control to the local level? Hmm. How did that work in the old days before the 17th Amendment? Egan wrote, After gaining control of much of the world's copper supply in the 19th century, robber baron William A. Clark set out to buy a seat in the U.S. Senate. Openly, he went about bribing Montana legislators 10000 a vote with the cash paid in monogrammed envelopes. Mark Twain called Clark as rotten a human being as can be found anywhere under the flag. But the senator did not show any shame. I never bought a man who wasn't for sale, he said. Of course it was corruption exactly like this that led to the 17th amendment which allows a direct election of senators. Adding that it was moves such as this by William Clark that uh, that uh, promoted the populist movement uh, in the US west including California. Anyway, let's uh, let's take a short break and then talk about more fun stuff in segment 3. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.